This is the uh, seventh Sunday of Easter. We used to call it the Sunday after Ascension Day. And uh, I mentioned last week, would I say every Sunday after Ascension was St. Matthew's Church, 1970. I'm opening the Sunday school with the chapel service in Julia Baylord Hall. And in the old liturgy, we put the Paschal candle out after the gospel on Ascension Day when you don't have to go when you do that, but sometimes we do it for effect. And then the Paschal candle goes away. Now we've restored the ancient practice, which was to keep the Paschal candle in the church uh, through Pentecost, and then it will disappear uh, without a great deal of ritual. So I said to the kids to open the Sunday school, what is not in this chapel that has been in this chapel for 40 days? The Paschal candle. That's right. And why is the Paschal candle not here? Because we don't have to think about Jesus anymore. A lot of people don't have to think about Jesus anymore, right? If you want to be absolutely frank, but there it is. Um, But I want to say something about the ascension. Uh, it's, It's important to say that we shouldn't focus conversation about the uh, ascension around a a historical event that is understandable and how we do that. That's a conversation that we can have. And uh, my tendency is to be conservative on this. But uh, the truth of the matter is uh, the witnesses differ. Um, There's been an enormous amount of work done over the last 15 or 20 years on what eyewitness testimony meant in the ancient Near East. So it, it isn't, it's also just like when you see an automobile accident and the police ask you what happened and somebody said he drew, she, she was driving a green car and somebody else said no, it was silver. So those are the things that are part of this. But there's a point being made by the story of the Ascension. And Father Thomas Keating, who's I read to you about or, or to you about him all the time, said that, Christ ascended not into some geographical location, but into the heart of all creation. In particular, he has penetrated the very depth of our being. Our separate self-sense has melted into his divine person, and now we can act under the direct influence of his spirit. He goes on to say that it is a mysterious interpenetration of material experience, spiritual reality, and the divine presence. This opens to us the transcendent potential in ourselves to our mind, which opens up to unlimited truth, and to our will, which reaches out for unlimited love. We haven't described how we would understand truth. Um, I heard truth, Alvin Plantinga, the uh, philosopher, said, Some people define truth as that which my colleagues will let me get away with. (laughs) So we could understand that. I talked about this. It's interesting. It's a little digression. Uh, There was a book written in 1977 called Paul and Palestinian Judaism. 
by E.P. Sanders. And in that book, he, he said something which I remember when I was in seminary, although I was never at that level or had the de de decided to go to graduate school to get a Ph.D. But he said, if you wanted to know anything about first century Palestinian Judaism, at that time, the place you went to, to learn about it was uh, a book written by two German uh, biblical scholars, Strack and Billerbeck. And so you went to Strack and Billerbeck to get the real skinny on what it was like in first century Palestinian Judaism. So their graduate students who began to study with them would begin to do their own independent research. And they would uh, come up with conclusions different than Strack and Billerbeck. And faced with the, the data and the information that they had got through their scholarship, they still caved to Strack and Billerbeck because they knew what side their bread was buttered on. Right? So sometimes you have to be either so blindingly brilliant when you do, a, do graduate work that you can simply uh, shred them with what it is that you're talking about, or you cave. So at the uh, pause, the break in Episcopalian 101, there was a guy who'd come for the class who got his PhD uh, in molecular biology. And he received it, I think, at uh, the University of Edinburgh or Edinburgh University in Scotland. And he said, I, I uh, had the same experience when I, you know, got my own PhD. And here's the interesting thing in this case. He appeared to be the more liberal uh, in his writing of his dissertation and the experiment that he did uh, than his teacher who actually believed in his private religious life that we have a young earth. You know what I mean when I say that? There's two views on this. Do we have an old earth? Do we have a young earth? And so, uh, you know, the young earth, I think, is what's 6,000 years old or some crackpot thing about like that. So uh, he was uh, an old earth guy because he had done the work and so forth. So he got passed along and he got his PhD, but he said it was a very tense moment because I thought I was going to be uh, given the deep six because of my views. So just a word about scholarship generally before we uh, talk about what I also want to talk about today, and that is the readings from Acts, First Peter, and John's Gospel. The seventh Sunday after Easter is a holding pattern. We are reading in the biblical text, uh, waiting now, for Jesus has ascended, and we're waiting for something, and the promise in the Bible is that it's going to be the Holy Spirit of God, which we have received inklings of in, in some of the other biblical readings in Easter as we move towards the, the last Sundays of Easter, that uh, the Holy Spirit is going to come. And we're going to, in some way, be animated by the Holy Spirit. 
Either way, when I speak of that term, being animated by the Holy Spirit, I mean that we are the same people we have always been. We're just regular people. But God's Spirit in some way influences us. God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us. In this uh, YouTube video I talk about all the time, Sean Kelly, I've mentioned this, says that in, uh, Greek, in the Greek tradition, in the classical tradition, <coughs> the gods are, never, are, are not completely absent from things. Occasionally they come down. And occasionally they come down and they inhabit certain individuals in, to enable them to do things. You know, <coughs> Athena fills... Achilles, and uh, there's other stories about uh, Telemachus and so on, and the gods come down and fill them. But what happens is, is that when they get filled up, they are puffed up. They're, they're taller, they're more handsome, their locks are more curly, they smell better, <laughs> they are different. And what happened and what is being described in John's gospel, and I'll say that in a minute, was here's a guy who was here and he's just like us. He's just like we are. He's not puffed up. And we're not puffed up by virtue of being inspired by him. Receive the, the inspiration from his spirit, from God's spirit. So in the book of Acts, we have a rehearsal once again of the history of salvation and how... Uh, it is being described to them that the Spirit of God is going to come and that we will understand this most effectively. This is the church's interpretation reading back into this now through our public worship and the sacraments. So we connect to this, you know. In one sense, uh, Marcus Borg, who is a, a New Testament scholar who's very popular with a number of people, I don't agree with him all the time, by any stretch of the imagination, but he says something that's very wise and very true, and that is that uh, Episcopalians and certainly Catholic Christians of a variety of kinds, liturgical Christians, understand that checking all the boxes about the doctrinal agreements that have developed over time is not the thing that we need to do first. The way in which you understand the truth of what it is we're doing is to come to the liturgy. and experience the worship of the church. Now, some of it may be abstruse and obscure or even boring. But as time goes on, that's something that we begin to learn in terms of what is important. And that's why I've said over and over and over again, I used to be snippy about this, but I'm so happy if somebody comes out now and tells me, you know, Father Brewer, I really feel better when I come to church. <laughs> not... not that uh, I now understand uh, the uh, penal substitutionary theory of the atonement. Okay? So that's an important thing. And in the book of Acts, we're now being set up for this. Uh, we've read First Peter all through uh, the Sundays after Easter in this cycle. And First Peter, every Sunday I've said this, is in all probability an early baptismal homily. It was something that Peter or somebody like him uh, would preach at the liturgy in which baptism was being celebrated, and we would do that. My uh, old, one of my New Testament professors in seminary 
um, said, which sounds a little pompous, but I actually believe him. He said the uh, sermon is the apostolic commentary on the Holy Scriptures. So we have in the New Testament an apostolic commentary on baptism and the great sweep of salvation history in First Peter. There are some other places in Paul's writings where we have that as well. And Peter is now speaking at the end. He, there's something that's been added on to this homily, which is how are we coping with the fact that this message is not being received with great acclaim by a whole lot of people, and we're also being punished or persecuted for this? And how do we live in the midst of this kind of uh, persecution? And what, what, what coping skills do we get in order to be able to do this? And he's doing his best to comfort people by saying, you know, this is redemptive in some way, and you need to uh, come to realize that. But it's also because he does this in a way that a lot of New Testament literature does, and that is to give illiterate people the ability to understand in small snippets the truth of what is being said so that when they communicate this to other people, how do you share your greatest place of safety and assurance? They can memorize some things and they can say it to them. They can't show them the written text because they wouldn't know how to read it anyway in many cases. And so this is the way in which the, the uh, truth of the gospel is spread in the early days in, in that sense. So remember uh, a few weeks ago I told you about Sean Kelly uh, in this thing, the chair of the Department of Philosophy, and he said, my wife's mother grew up in China, and her mother made her memorize hundreds of lines of Chinese poetry every day. And when she got to be about 12 or 13, she said, I can't do this anymore. This is too burdensome. I have no idea why you are making me do this. This is absolute torture. So her mother says to her a version of what in, uh, when I grew up was, you may not like this now, but when you're older, you'll thank me, right? But... But what she said to her was, the reason I'm doing this is that you, as you live your life, are going to find yourself in certain circumstances. And as you are in this circumstance, one of these lines of poetry is going to come into your head unbidden. And it will apply to what it is that you are in the middle of. So what it's going to provide you with is some comfort to understand that somebody's been there before you and has made it through in some ways, but it's also going to situate yourself in the wider context that's bigger than you, that you are part of a very great culture. And by virtue of that, it's going to sustain you because the culture in itself supports us. That's why we believe in the church as Episcopalians. The community of faith supports us. Whether or not we are somehow deeply involved, peripherally involved, sort of involved, the church in that sense does support. It is a community of faith that supports one another. 
So a lot of times uh, you come to church, you'd be surprised to know that it's true for the clergy. And that is we come to the church on your faith. That's how we get supported on a day like, well, we don't feel like doing it or we just don't know whether we believe it anymore or what is it that we're going to do. So I read First Peter this week and I thought about Compline. Right? So Compline is, um, see if I can do this, like the, the, the woman who, the, the Chinese poetry. Uh, Brethren, be sober, be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, walketh about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Right? It's right from this epistle. And it's in Compline. And when I heard the text read today at the liturgy, I, for thou, O Lord, you know, ha, are, have mercy upon us. So it comes into your head unbidden because you've connected to it in some way like that. And so in the holding pattern of waiting for uh, Pentecost, the coming of the Spirit, we think about how we're situated uh, waiting. And, of course, we already know what the outcome is. It's like talking about what we did yesterday in Episcopalian 101, you know, the creation account in Genesis 1 was actually written after the creation. Right? So in philosophy, you would call, they're writing about something that is like a priori before, a posteriori, when it has already happened. So we, we already know those, that, that's the case, you know. And it's important for us to know because we can be helped by that. So John's gospel today is really towards the conclusion of the uh, farewell discourse, which runs about four, three and a half or four chapters. We're in chapter 17. Uh, the beginning, and, and Jesus is speaking about uh, saying goodbye and giving us one of these I and you and you and me and him and he, you know, we and him, you know. So sometimes you get it. I'm beginning, even after all these years, to actually get some of this, <laughs> which surprises me always. But uh, there it is. The great high priestly prayer. Remember when Jesus or John speaks about the world? He's not speaking, uh, he's not condemning the physical, material world. He's condemning the whole of the creation organized against the purposes of God. Because the, 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 the foundation of the Gospels has to do with how you and I are, become transformative agents in the world, not somewhere else. So he's speaking about these things and saying to us that uh, we need to look for the ways in which we can continuously reproduce this. So for uh, John's Gospel, the Jesus of John's Gospel, it's not as explicit as in other Gospels, but he means... Baptism, the Holy Eucharist, uh, participating in the prayer of the community and how we understand this. And more to the point, he is speaking to the disciples about the unitive character between him and those who follow him. For the Johannine community, if God were walking around on the earth, this is who he would be like. So we begin to say in the Johannine community also said, we're not sitting here watching in an adoring way some tableau that is being played out in front of us. We have been given tools that we can use. 
We have been given a way to follow him, and we have been strengthened and empowered by him. And through listening to him and seeing his mighty works, we found out a way in which we are now going to be able to be God's people in the world. We will do these things too. And we had a couple of weeks ago, you will do even greater works than these, right? They weren't specified, but there we are. There we are. So we have that hope that is in us. So as we continue through the waiting period until for the next eight days, uh, give thanks for God's unifying work in you and uh, through the presence of the Holy Spirit that we will celebrate. On Trinity Sunday, I'll talk again about Dr. John McQuarrie, who always refers when he talks about the Trinity to the Holy Spirit as unitive being. The processes that bring together uh, the whole of the cosmos in a way that is life-giving. Uh, and so we now know that it's coming, and we should give thanks for it. Amen. Amen.